Let's pray. God, I thank you right now for these students, God, who are so talented. God, I thank you for these parents in this room, God, who, who have loved them and who have taken care of them. And God, right now, I just thank you for everybody else who you've just drawn here today. God, I pray for any of the stories that have brought these people here. God, that you can just draw us back to what has caused us to be here, the lives that we have led up to this point, and help us as we focus in this story of Paul today, just to look back and just to think how we relate. And pray all these things in your name. Amen. So what we have here today is a recognition of our graduates. And most of us in this room have probably experienced what that was like inside of our lives. Most of us in this room have graduated at some point. And you've gone through, and as you're going through life, you've, you've graduated, and the feelings that are associated with our graduation are feelings of excitement. They're feelings of anticipation. Ultimately, you start to feel like you can take on the world. I, I'm just maybe alone. But I always remember graduating. I think of all my friends. I grew up in a true bachelor group through my church life. I felt really bad for all of the adults who poured into us because there were like six of us guys who acted absolutely crazy. And when we turned 18, we felt like we could dominate the world. And we very closely took down one church camp and we almost took out a subdivision um, in the process down in Middleburg. And I just think of that feeling of invincibility. But how many of us actually ended up taking over the world? I mean, we sit here, and as these graduates sit here, they have the feeling that they can conquer anything. But what stops us from conquering anything? Why do we then settle back into just a normal, everyday life? And I still think that that feeling resides within all of us. A real want to change the way things are. I mean, we live in America after all, right? The whole idea was that this was a country that was going to be different and set up things like democracies. And so what happens inside of our lives? Graduation at the University of Texas, I love their slogan. It's this, what starts here changes the world. And really today, as we look at this passage in Acts chapter 16, what we're going to see is we're going to see the beginning of how the world actually was changed through just a few people. In Acts chapter 16, what we're going to see is how Greece was ultimately affected with the gospel. And once Greece was affected with the gospel, the rest of Rome became affected with the gospel. And ultimately, this Eastern religion that was Judaism becomes a very staple Western religion across the rest of the world. And I don't think it would have happened without this missionary journey by Paul. And so turn with me to Acts 16, and we'll begin reading here shortly. Here's the point about world change that I want you to understand. World change happens through individuals who change culture. You will change the world because the Bible ultimately transforms the people to change the world. The people affect culture. And so the first point today is the overall arching point. It's that God ultimately uses people to change the world. And we can't stop thinking that. The minute we start thinking that laws are what change the world, the minute we start thinking that other things are what change the world, we've, we've missed the point of humanity. 
it's always drawn back to people. And so here Paul is about to begin his second missionary journey. He just got affirmed the fact by the Jerusalem council that he could go out and that he could witness to the Gentiles and that they didn't have to become Jews first. They could just become Christians. And he sets up his missionary team and he's about to charge ahead. And as you get to the start of this chapter, you see in verses 6 through 8 that Paul is really trying to get somewhere, but that something keeps stopping him. And that something was the Holy Spirit. He tries to go in one direction, the Holy Spirit stops him and doesn't let him go. He tries to go in another direction, the Holy Spirit stops him and doesn't let him go. And I don't know if that was your story through life or that's ever happened to you, because I know it's happened to me. You feel like it's a bunch of false starts, but really what it is is it's God tailoring you and directing you to where he actually wants you to go. And that's the story of Paul here. And so if you pick up with me, we're going to read verses 9 through 10 of chapter 16 at the very beginning. Because Paul has this vision, and what Paul sees is a vision of a Macedonian man. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel. And so what we see here is that Paul is going, and as Paul's going, he ends up meeting a series of people. And so this is one of the great points of the New Testament. I love this. This is when it becomes homiletical, which means a storytelling. There are some places inside of the New Testament where it's very doctrinal, and it's point, 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 point. This is a story, so I want you to follow it like a story. So imagine that you're watching The Wizard of Oz, and Paul is Dorothy. Right? Or for those of you who are a little bit younger, imagine that you're watching Lord of the Rings, right? And Paul is Frodo. And what he's going to do is he's going to embark on this magical quest, and he's going to encounter some people along the way. And what I don't want us to do is I don't want us to place us inside of the position of Paul too quickly. Because I think too often we like doing that in the Bible. Like, I am Jesus. No, you're really not. So don't place yourself in Paul. Instead, I want to challenge you to look into this story. And figure out, is your story more like those of the other three people who he encounters? And so it starts in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Simothrace, and the following day to Naples, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in that city some days, And on the Sabbath, we went outside to the gate, to the riverside, when we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And so here is our first person. It's Lydia. See, Lydia is a little bit like my story. Who was Lydia? Lydia, when Paul encounters her, is a woman that's down by the riverside, and she is a God-fearer. She is a Gentile, but she ultimately sees some truth inside of what's going on inside of Judaism. She's not yet a Christian. But there's some things that we know of Lydia. Number one, she is a prominent woman. A lot of women don't get names inside of historical texts. The Bible is one of the few that actually predominantly start naming women and lifting up women. And Lydia is one of those people. But what is her job? She is a seller of purple goods. This ultimately makes her a very rich woman. 
in particular because she is from two cities. And these two cities are very big cities. Thyatira, which was like New York, and here Philippi, which is another major city. It's not the capital city, but it does mention that here it was the leading city of the district of Macedonia. And what that means is that that Philippi was really one of the cultural centers of Macedonia. And so imagine if you own two large houses and you operate trade inside of L.A. for one example and New York for another. You're pretty well off. And that's the story of Lydia. But she's down by the riverside doing what? She's reading Beth Moore, right? She's down by the river studying about who God is and really trying to be it. And that's who some of us were. We were sitting here and we grew up in church. We were moral people. We were good people. We may even be well off. Our needs are taken care of. And so the point is, is that Paul is still going. And ultimately, Paul is looking. And so here's the second point that I want to draw your attention. is that people are ultimately our mission and not our tools. People are our mission and not our tools. See, Paul was clear on his directive. Paul's directive was to build new churches. And there's something that goes on within the mind of Paul that has to go on when he meets a woman like Lydia. See, it's really easy to build churches around cultural people and around people that have a lot of influence. But does Paul look at Lydia as a tool to build a massive church around? And the answer, according to this text, is ultimately no. We read verse 14 and 15. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well. And so what I want you to see here is that ultimately, it's the reaction of who is doing the work inside of Lydia's life. Who is doing the work inside of Lydia's life, even in in this story? Right there, it says the Lord opened her heart. See, it's not that Paul crafted some kind of statement that all of a sudden made her into this leader of the church. All Paul was was a mouthpiece for God. And he simply allowed the Lord to open her heart and to change who she was. Paul didn't see her as a tool to be used to build a church. Instead, he realized that Lydia, in all of her morality, in all of her goodness, and in all of the things that seemed Christian about her, She still needed something. She was still on his mission. Because even in that space, she needed God. And so here comes an important lesson, ultimately, for graduates here. And this is also an important lesson for us as adults as we've made it through life. And that's a question. Are people a means to your end? Are people a means to your end? Do you see everyone and everything existing to serve your goals? Or are you willing to step into people's lives simply because they have a need? Graduates, it's going to be easy when you start getting into college for you to start questioning people and things and for you to try and game plan what's going to happen in college because college gets to be cutthroat real fast. I went to a place called You Never Finish. I went there because it was local and I loved being at home because it was cheap. Be honest. It's called You Never Finish because if you don't register for your classes on the day you're supposed to register, you won't get into that class and that class won't be offered again for another two years. 
And so really, some friends will start to ask you, like, when are you registering? And then you just start hiding it, like, I need to tell you. But it happens in life. Very quickly, rivalry starts creeping into our lives, and we start to start looking at people and trying to use people. And that's when we made a mistake. People aren't simply tools to be used by us, but our mission, and they are tools to be used by God. We are ultimately the tool to be used by God. Paul simply taught allowing Lydia to listen and ultimately allowed God to work. The greatest impact you will have on people is if you will allow yourself to be a tool used by God and you ultimately let him take sole ownership of creating life change. And that isn't just a message for graduates. That's a message for all of us in this room. Maybe it's a spouse who has difficulty with the other. You can't make that change. God has to make that change in the other person. So here, we're going to be interactive. How many of you, raise your hand. I know we got to grease up the oil, okay? How many of you, this is your story. You were a moral person. You were a churchgoer. This is who you are. If you have to outline with somebody, you would say, I am Lydia. Anybody? It's me. Okay. Awesome. I don't see a lot of hands, which means you have two more tries. And I love these next two, okay? Because it gets really fun. And it starts in verse 16 as we read through verse 19. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. See? Be excited. You didn't raise your hand the first time because this could be you. And we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul into us, crying aloud, These men are servant of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now stop there. This isn't somebody who's actually proclaiming the good news. This isn't like a posse person who's sitting there saying, Yeah, listen to them. Okay, that's not what's going on by the slave girl. Actually, if you look at the text and what it is, um, it's really not talking about that at all. In fact, she starts using some phrases that make it seem like she's, they're actually talking about Zeus, and they're, they're only preaching a way of salvation. It's really interesting. And so Paul's sitting there trying to minister, and here comes this lady who's behind her, this slave girl who's behind them, and is just nagging them. And this she kept doing for many days. Oh, I love this next part. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed. I love it. That's like real, Right? Paul is getting annoyed at this. I don't know how many people of you have, how many of you have ever been annoyed at somebody. Here Paul is, he's getting annoyed. And so what does he do? He turns to her and he cusses her out. No, that's not what ultimately happens. He doesn't turn to her and yell at her. He doesn't make the other missionaries turn to her and silence her. Instead, what does Paul do? Paul turns to her and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. And so here's our second point that I want to make to you about people. And it's that people are ultimately our destination and people are not our roadblocks. It would have been very easy for Paul to turn and look at this slave girl and to all of a sudden assume that she's a roadblock that's stopping them from getting to the real people they were called to minister to. Instead, what Paul sees is that this person was really the person that they were called to minister to. And so often in lives, we can get stopped and we can look at that person, that person inside of a group project, whether we're at school and they are just annoying and hold us down. And we look at them and we just wish that they were gone out of our lives. 
As we enter into workplace, we may get around a boss that we think, man, that boss is just holding me down. And if they would just be moved, I would ascend. We can look inside of our own families and we can think that person is just holding me down. If they were gone, life would be better. But the point is, is that if we're going to make a real change in the world, we have to understand that people are our destination. They are not our roadblocks. And here's my guess with a bunch of you. My guess is that I don't have a lot of slave girls in here who have spirits of divination. I'm just going to assume that right now. But I want you to get to the heart of who she was. Either by the fault of her own steps or the force of others, she had given herself over to a type of licentiousness and depravity that had now consumed her life. She completely gave herself over and let the spirit come in and it took root and it was now running her life. And she let these other people now run her life. And I love that this story happens directly after Lydia. Why? Because here in the story of Lydia, here's a woman who is put together. She's driven. She's brilliant. She knows how to save money well. She is wealthy and ultimately she's respected. And even in that situation, Jesus steps in and says, I have a need to save. But then here we come to this girl. She is just busted up. She's taken advantage of, abused. She's given herself over to desire. And here in this space, Jesus steps in. And I love it because some of us have no way to relate to Lydia. We feel like we have to make ourselves better. We feel like we have to make ourselves right. We feel like we have to put on a show and go down by the river. And we know that we really can't do that. And the point is, is that Jesus doesn't want you to wait and to go by the river. He just wants you. Because this woman was in a much darker place. And Jesus finds us in the nastiness of drugs and alcohol. He finds us in the nastiness of sexual promiscuity. And here in these horrible places, God says, look, here I am and here is hope. And in the middle of addiction, in the middle of darkness, Jesus wants to step in. And so now we got to grease up our arms again. How many of us, this is our story. You are sitting here and you were that person who was caught inside of addiction. And you were caught inside of your mess. And honestly, just admit it. Jesus found you and saved you. How many of you, that is your story or that's what you're going through right now? Anybody? Awesome. Awesome. I love that people can admit the fact that Jesus has rescued them because he is our redeemer. Students and graduates, let me tell you, you're going to go through life, and eventually you're going to get in school, and then all of a sudden, you're going to be there, and you're going to realize that your life no longer looks like Lydia, who you were when you were in your student group. All of a sudden, you've woken up and you've realized that your life is the story of the slave girl. And you are caught, and you are trapped, and you are stuck. And at that point, you need to remember that there were people in your past who loved you. There are people in your past who cared for you, and there are people who are around you that still want to love you. Because it's going to be the only thing that will save you. It's going to be the only thing that can save you. Because when you're left on your own, you will just drive yourself deeper and deeper and deeper in. The truth of the gospel is that Lydia is no better off than the slave girl. And the slave girl is at no disadvantage for Jesus. And that is amazing. That's amazing. Y'all are quiet. That is amazing. I mean, you are at no disadvantage for the sake of the kingdom. That is great. Oh, and I love this next story. 
I still know that there are some hands that need to be raised, so we're going to keep going. What happens is these people who used to own this girl, she's changed. She no longer can fortune tell. She no longer can do these things. And now these people who are making a profit drag out the apostle Paul, and they drag out these missionaries, and ultimately they charges on them, they beat them, and they throw them into jail. And we're going to pick up in verse 28. Oh, I'm going to skip before we get there. You got a lot going on right there. Right before then, what happens is as they're in jail, we see the story of this man, and this man is called the Philippian jailer. He has no name. He's just known as the jailer. I want you to understand something about jailers at this point in time. Jailers are typically, in large cultural cities, going to be retired Roman officers or legionaries who are now put in charge as a retirement gift in charge of these jails. Now, there's something true about Roman officers, and it's that they're brutal. They would take cities of people and nail them up on crosses. They would devastate hundreds and thousands of people at a time. The Roman war machine was impressive and mighty. And here it is that this is where these people are dragged to. And notice what this man does, okay? In verse 24, they're called to ultimately take these, to take Paul and to take the others that are with him and put them into jail and have them secure. But what does the jailer decide to do? Instead, he decides to take them and to throw them into the innermost part of the jail. And I'll let you know, sewage systems didn't work at that time. And so sewage, there's this wonderful thing about water, and it flows downhill. For Paul, that's not a good thing. Because he's put up in stocks, put in a contorted way that your body doesn't naturally want to go at the innermost part, which is going to be the very bottom of the jail. And every feces and every waste and every problem is flowing right down to where Paul is. And in the midst of that is where Paul decides, and the rest of the guys with him, to pray and to sing and to glorify God. We really have no reason not to glorify God because we're all dressed nicely right now and not in stocks. And yet it's here that this happens. And so what does God do? God causes this great earthquake to come, and this great earthquake opens up the doors. And as the doors are opened up, Paul is about to cry out to this jailer because the jailer sees the doors open, thinks that all the prisoners have gone free, which means he was about to be killed if he loses these inmates. And so he's about to kill himself, and this is where we see verse 28. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought him out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him. You know this, food isn't supposed to be brought to people in jail. Friends are supposed to bring food to people in jail. The jailer had no right to do this. And in fact, he was actually committing crimes by doing this. And he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. What is the message of this person? It's the message of the fact that even when we are at our most against God, God still longs for us. I mean, really get it in your head. This was a man who was aggressive, who was angry, who was bitter. 
And maybe it was because of things that were done to him. Maybe it was just because that's who he was. And for some of us, that's our story. That's who we are. We are aggressive. We are angry. And we are bitter. And we really don't want to admit that. But in our heads, we know it's true. And the fact of the gospel is that God will even take this person and transform them into the foundation of a church. That is incredible. It's like if you're watching The Wizard of Oz and all of a sudden the wizard comes or the witch comes down and she helps Dorothy get to Oz. It's all of a sudden you're watching it and Sauron, who spent his entire 18 hours or whatever, depending on what edition you're watching of Lord of the Rings, he spent all of this time trying to get the ring and now he wants to destroy it. This is incredible because God will take those who are the most against him and transform their lives. And so there is always hope for you. There is nothing you could have done against God that will ever keep you from coming to God. And graduates, that could be you as well. Eventually you may feel and you may run because of things that you've heard in school, because of things that you just question. And I know of enough people that have gone from deep followers of the faith to ultimately being the most critical people against the faith. And it doesn't matter if that's where you are. Because that same hour of the night, the jailer went from being the one who was going to torture these people to being the one who was washing their wounds. Just think, God could have done anything in that earthquake. I mean, really, God could have swallowed up this guy. But he chose not to. That's grace. And that's what he's offered all of us. Why? Because people are our destination. And they're not our roadblocks. And so if this is you, if this is your story, if you're sitting here and you're saying, look, that is me, I am aggressive. Anybody want to willing to raise your hand? And I'll say this, okay? I'm like half this. Like in my heart, I love competition, rivalry, and aggression. And so I was raised in church, but then I also have this side of me that's this. And I'm so glad that over the course of my life, God has taken this side of me, and he slowly whittled it away to now I just get angry less often. When I do, I will blow my cap. But it doesn't happen as much. And so there's hope. Nobody raised their hands, and I don't want to ask you again because I don't want to meet anybody after the service and have to learn about it. But I want you to know, ultimately, this last two points, that our lives are God's method for change. Our lives are God's method for change. And I want you to really take this home with you. Your life matters. Last month at Southside Baptist Church, over 600 people came inside of our doors. I want to give you a challenge. If in your entire life, all you do is you impact 10 people, your entire life, all you have to do is impact 10 people. And then those 10 people, the next generation down, impact only 10 more people. And then one more generation down, they only impact 10 more people. Then what that means is that in 75 years, ultimately, Southside Baptist Church could reach over 600,000 people. This is the power of small groups. It's the fact that we don't have to all reach Jacksonville. We just have to reach 10. Your lives are God's method for change. And you can change 
10 lives over the course of your life, this is when it gets really tricky, okay? If that carries itself down one more generation, after 100 years, 6 million people could be changed. That is the population of Dallas-Fort Worth. So don't think that you don't have power. Don't think that you can't create change. The story of the gospel is that out of a few people, the entire world was changed. These three people are ultimately the foundation of the Philippian church, and it's one where we get our book of Philippians out of. And it's a testament that God will take anybody and transform them. And so this last point, and it goes without stating a lot of times, that ultimately God meets you where you are. God meets you where you are. So where are you? Who are you? And you really have four choices in this story. Sure, some of you could be Paul. You could be the missionaries that are out there. But I guarantee you that there are some of us who are still Christian Lydia's. We may have accepted a relationship with Christ, but ultimately we're still drawn by our moral system, and that is our system, not our relationship with Jesus Christ. I think that some of us honestly could be a slave girl who's a Christian. Yes, we have a relationship with God, we have all the power, but we choose to subject ourselves and put ourselves right back into the sin that so easily entangles us, and that's the fact of Hebrews 12, to let go of the weights because you have the power to change. And I guarantee you that there are some of us who are Christian jailers. We want to take people and we want to mold them and we want to trap them and we want to aggressively force them into what we want them to be. So I leave you with these three questions and these two practices. Who do you identify most within this passage? How does their story ultimately give you hope for yours? And what is God calling you to change? I want to challenge you this week to tell your story to one person. Parents, I'm going to be honest with you. Some of your students, some of your children need to hear your story. Because they don't know it. They don't know what you've been through. They don't know the struggles that you've been through. And honestly, they could be trapped in the exact same thing that you were. And they won't know who to turn to because you never told them. Tell your story to one person. And the second thing, volunteer. Just volunteer to serve because you have the power to change. Let's pray. God, right now I just pray for those of us in this room, God, who maybe feel a direction and a calling towards somebody and something. God, don't let them back down from that. But God, right now, I really want to stress and pray for the people in this room, God, who right now are living a life of that of Lydia, of that of the slave girl, or of that of the jailer. Lord, they've never started a relationship with you, and they are trapped. They are trapped in their morality. They are trapped inside of their circumstances. And God, they're trapped inside of their own anger. God, if that is somebody in this room right now who's never started a relationship with you, God, I just pray you can draw them. I'll be down on the front. Just draw them to you. And ultimately, God, I'll pray for these graduates. Lord, that they can make the change that you want them to make in the world. That they can listen and they can focus and they can go to you. 
And I pray all these things in your name. Amen.